You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. In short, it's been my best year ever. I've had the most fun and the most changes in any any one year before, and uh, uh, the year has just, in, in retrospect, felt very long and full. Quite the opposite of what people are are, are talking about when, when people get older, that they think that the years just fly by. 2016 has been quite the opposite. I'll take that as a good sign. Yeah, yeah that's, um, I think. I mean, I think it shows that some of my um, lifestyle choices are are working in in terms of trying to um, actively seek novelty and uh, fun and scary things and, and just new things. So let's, let's dive into that because there were a couple of things that I wanted to chat about with you today, which we've banded around a little bit before. And then after that, sort of dive into global macro and um, some of the banks, which you know, you're an equity guy. So that's quite keen to get your take on that. And I think sort of covering a little bit of what you've just discussed now can put things in perspective. So I'll go first and then you can throw rocks at this. So, I mean, I guess it's sort of a cliche that, you know, there's a saying, the rising tide lifts all boats. And if that's true, then surely a receding tide will do the opposite. A lot of my thinking comes around, if you can get roughly 80%, which I guess comes into Pareto's law of the 80-20 principle, if you can get 80% of most things right um, and intelligently manage risk, then, you know, <clears throat> from the investment standpoint, you'll outperform. But the same is true of, you know, literally anything in your life. And so one of the things that I've tried to do is try to eliminate the 80% that is a waste of time because probably only 20% of, you know, the people that you come across are ever going to have any re- real meaningful impact on your life. And 20% of what you actually do will, will have um, a meaningful uh, projection in your life so it's not about necessarily trying to find the 20 percent, but more about eliminating the 80 percent so that you have time for the 20 percent and this this was brought up to me just a couple of weeks ago by a friend which is why i wanted to talk to you about it because there's a blog post that you made just recently which which kind of delved into this so i think you'll get where i'm going but this particular friend um we'd actually met you know, years back, his boss was looking to get some advice, some advice on a particular deal that he was structuring from me. And so I agreed to meet with them and they provided me some materials before the meeting, which I reviewed and I I built out a whole lot of number of follow-up questions that I wanted to clarify things. Anyway, we sat down at a restaurant and for, for a meeting and Within the first couple of minutes, the boss got on his cell phone and started talking to somebody. So I was sort of sitting there twiddling my thumbs. Then he got off the phone and he put a phone down on the table. And then, you know, we we started and he kept looking across and looking at his phone. And I said to him, is there anything important that you, you know, should we do this at another time? Is there anything important that you need to, um, you know, your wife's in hospital or something like that? Oh, no, 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 not a problem. Carry on. Anyway, I, um, so I carried on asking the question and I asked one of the questions and he uh, transferred the question to uh, the gentleman who's now my friend who I didn't know at the time. 
who proceeded to answer the question. And while this was taking place, he picked up his phone and he carried on flicking around and, and playing with his phone. But he was the one that requested the meeting and he was the decision maker in the whole process. Um, and ultimately, he, he was the person that I would have been providing the information to. And, and um, so within about two minutes of this, I just got up and, um, and I walked out because they were wasting my time. And I, you know, I, just, I was decided I'm going to eliminate um, wasting my time. So I just got up and walked out. And apparently, now years later, he says, they sat there for about 30 minutes wondering if I'd gone to the toilet or you know, what, had, what had happened to me. And I just disappeared. And I didn't take the guy's phone calls or anything because, you know, he wasted my time. So anyway, what it comes back to now, I guess, is, you know, efficiency. And I'm curious from your perspective, because I know you've spent a lot of time on some of these these things which we, you know, we, we could consider them not to be relevant to financial markets or anything, but I think they're very, very important just in how you think and how you go about your life. So I'm curious from your perspective, how do you go about efficiency? And it sounds like you've had a, one of the most efficient years of, of your history. What do you attribute that to and how do you go about doing that? Oh, that's, that's a truly difficult question. My, um, my podcasting partner, uh, Ludwig, he has his own blog, Start Gaining Momentum. He usually says that the reason I tend to do things well or, or seem to choose the right things to do is that I've somehow just gained the experience and, and a, a good pattern recognition system over the years. So I don't really have to put it down to um, and, and, and make like a bullet point list for, for how to be efficient. The way I do it, I, I just, well, more or less actually let my gut feeling guide me. So it's difficult to make a system out of this. But uh, one thing I, I do keep around is my, my Evernote notes. So that's, that's where I keep my commonplace system that is um, like a, a structured network of, um, of notes on everything. Um, so anytime I come up with an idea, and that's typically when I'm at the gym or on a dog walk, because that's where I spend most of my time, I just jot it down either directly into Evernote, but it, it's kind of a little bit too slow, at least on my phone and, and my systems. So I, I just usually just jot the note down and in just one word, some kind of a tag describing why I thought about this and why it's, it's relevant. So it could be, could be just anything like a, a blog post idea or, or an answer to a question I got four weeks ago. So I, don't, I simply don't let any ideas go, go to waste. And I definitely don't let ideas just keep lingering in my head and disturbing me or, or taking away my focus from the now. So anytime I get anything, any, any kind of thoughts, I just write it down and I'm, and I'm done with it. And then I have set times later during, during the day when I take care of these and, and sort them and, and make sure that if they are, if they are stupid ideas, I just uh, discard them. And if they are, interesting ideas for maybe my book or a blog post or, or just a, a tweet to, uh, well, I actually use Twitter for, we can call it business. It's my business is creating attention and drawing readers to my blog since I want to spread my ideas. So I, 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 some of these ideas are simply just good enough for, for tweeting, which, well, they call it a, a microblog and that's how I use it. I, I tweet as, as blogs 
like very short blog posts rather than than just trying to be funny or or i don't know really what people are doing they're communicating with each other you're grabbing pieces of information out of the ether which are coming into your mind whether you you know pumping iron or walking the dog you're jotting them down and then you're going back and um, when you go back do you sort of synthesize those exactly so so later during the day when when i'm not eating or walking the dog or, or working out i go through the ideas if they are interesting if i'm if I want to do something with them, if I, if I still feel that whatever I wrote down had some value to it, then I, I use it at that point, um, elaborate and expand the note into a, a more coherent and, and, and useful paragraph or something like that. And, and also make sure I get it down into my actual commonplace system in, in Evernote and, and put it in the right place. And, uh, you know, there are different places for, for, uh, for the book and for, and for the blog post and for podcast ideas. Um, so just make sure it, it's, it's at the right place. So for example, if it's a podcast idea, I, I write a few sentences. What I, what I, what was the original thoughts? What do I want to use it for? Uh, where in the podcast and or when uh, during the coming podcast, would it be interesting? Uh, is it just like, um, an interesting factoid or, or is it, uh, the embryo of an entire episode. Uh, so as I put it in the right place in my commonplace for podcasting, and that means that the next time I want to sit down and do something that has to do with the podcast, then these, these ideas will just be there for, for my convenience. So when I sit down to, to prepare the coming few weeks of, of podcasting, I just open my commonplace where it says podcasting, and there will be just like magically ideas for entire episodes and ideas for interesting facts to to just uh, sprinkle over the episodes to make them interesting so and that that means that i um once i i sit down to actually do the podcast i have all the ideas i need so i never really have to sit down and try to be creative because that can take a lot of time i'm not sure how familiar you are with that but if you if you sit down with a, a just a an empty sheet of paper and, and a pen or, or, or a computer screen and and this is your allotted time to right. be creative it's just nothing coming out you can't force creativity uh, and but i get it all day long and i don't miss any of it that's interesting there's i was having a chat with with my developer and we were talking about some of these things and, and, you know, volume of information and how do you synthesize that? And I you know, went back to many, many years ago when I was studying for university. And then at the same time, I was working in investment banks. So I'd study correspondence at night and I'd work 70 hour work weeks, come home and I'd need to churn through an enormous amount of material and be able to synthesize that and, and pass my exams. And I was doing it full time, which most people thought was insane because you can't work full-time and study full-time. So I had, to, I had to hack it in some way. And so I taught, taught myself how to speed read. <clears throat> and I'd, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd sit down and work until about one o'clock in the morning. And I would go through vast, because I was studying law, which is you know, it's the most insane one to study because there's, there's such enormous volumes of work. But I would go through and, and literally, almost like hashtags, I would, as I was speed reading through the material, I would have a piece of paper and I would just, put down the, the, the main words that came out of, say, a paragraph. And I'd just jot them all down. 
And I realized that I was only getting probably 80% if I was lucky. And then that's all I had time for. I would just, I would have, I would come away from an evening with about three to four A4 sheets of words just randomly jotted down. And I would leave it and I would come back the next night and I would then synthesize all of that. I would just go through all of those words and then I would write it out in something that I could understand. And often it would be something that had almost nothing to do with the topic. So it would be something that would trigger, give me a trigger in my head. If, for example, I wanted to remember this conversation that I had with you, it would be easier for me to remember it if something unusual happened, if a a rock flew through my window or if um, your dog jumped onto you and, you know, peed on you. you If there was something unusual that took place, I would remember it and then that would act as a trigger for everything below it. And I would remember all of the other or, or probably 80% of the rest of the material. So I would try and find trigger points in each and every one of these, these ideas, capsules of ideas. <clears throat> and that would, that would be how I built it out. And that's all I did. So I essentially I covered material once, synthesized it once, and I never touched it again until I sat down and wrote papers. I managed to get through vast amounts of information, pass, and, and spend essentially probably three, four hours a day on material that people were spending the entire day and night studying. And so I've tried to utilize a similar process going forward. And it's funny, you talk about going for walks with the dog and uh, gymming, and that's where you get your feedback. That's where you get your information. I find I like running, so I will go for a run. and it's meditative. I, I kind of step into my own world when I'm running and, um, and I'll go out for a run and the ideas come to me while I'm running. So I always, I'll come back dripping in sweat and I have a piece of paper and I just jot down the things that have come to me and sometimes the garbage and sometimes they're not. And so much it's, it's interesting because it's a similar ish process to getting that, natural flow of information and not forcing it and then just putting it down and and going back later and synthesizing it and and seeing if it's useful or if it's complete rubbish yeah sure i mean i've I've been for sometimes when i'm I'm on long walks and and don't really want to disturb the rhythm of them then i just try to actually remember uh, the interesting things i i come up with Uh, but sometimes i i kind of realize that I just don't want to forget this and I, I know there is still more to come. So I, I have to get this down to, to make sure there is space for, for the next idea. And, and maybe I, I also should add that during my walks and during the gym, I, I typically listen to podcasts. So I'm bombarded with information as well. Sometimes the ideas have to do with, with the actual podcast I'm listening to, and sometimes they just trigger something else. So they trigger a, a, like a synthesized event where, where I just combine two ideas, one from the podcast I'm listening to maybe, and maybe from something I'm doing at the gym or something I heard during the dog walk earlier in the day. Um, so I think this one part of all this is that I'm, I'm moving and moving is thinking more and more brain research is showing that that's what the brain was, was made for and to begin with to analyze motion. And 
when we move, we are more creative. That's at least a, a given. That, that's also been shown. It pushes off Alzheimer's and, and it makes you more creative if you, if you move around when, when you try to solve problems. So, so I move around and I move weights around and I move myself around and, and interact with the dog. And at the same time, I'm listening to, to new and interesting information. Well, maybe this is not interesting to, to people who want to trade the market since what I'm listening to is science stuff and um, um, and um, like working out tips and tricks um, history well I do listen to some uh, some economics as well but most of what I listen to probably wouldn't really fit the bill for for a trader but you could apply the exact same strategy just make sure you like I don't know listen to uh, to traders podcasts and, and get just a lot of information from from very different perspective um, bullish and bearish and macro and micro i mean and just see what what kind of ideas you come up with and, and try to move around while doing it i i definitely think that just sitting still and watching stock charts that's not the way to be creative about the market or, or trading and we've got the ability to do that so much more with mobile devices and um Things like that. The, the, it's interesting because I get a lot of questions on um, the blog as well. You know, one of them is often, "What do you suggest reading? What, what was it? You know, what would you study if you wanted to, you know, go back and do it all again, sort of thing." And I've thought a lot about it, and I always used to, you know, look at various books that I'd read. There were a couple of seminal books that had had an impact. But part of the reason that I live where I live now is actually to get away from the, the volume of information, you know, working in uh, London, Manhattan, any place like that with everybody that you meet is, is getting the same information. You go to the golf course, they're all talking the same thing. You go to the, the restaurant, they're all talking. It's, it's, and it's, it's a deluge of, of similar information. And I've found that it's far more useful for me to actually be far away, removed from it, because the information flow is still, it's still accessible pretty much anywhere on the planet. But not having the physical impetus from people, I find, it, I find it useful because it can affect you in terms of we're social creatures. So if you, if you, when I think about it, I go, I know that my brain works a certain way. I'm a social creature. And as such, if I'm in an environment with other people, unless I'm completely antisocial, which could probably be very useful, I will have a tendency to maybe want to agree with certain things and I won't have the ability to step out of it and kind of just look at the forest rather than, than the trees. So physically removing myself from that, that environment, I think is quite useful. But coming back to the question that I had before, which is, you know, what would you look at it and things like that? I find increasingly it's history. It's history. And then it's looking at, you know, you mentioned science. And so if you go through history and you say, what are the major events that have changed existence? It's mm. been scientific-based. And you could sort of talk about, I mean, technology is it, a science there. The invention of the of ocean-going vessels, you know, things like that were, were essentially were the engineering but science-based. And so those were things that had massive impacts on the markets going through periods of history. Um, it's interesting, I was looking at a a long list of the bull markets from the 1800s and going through the main bull markets that we've had. And you can actually pull out each and every one of those had a technology component to it, which we could call a scientific component to it. Mm -hmm. I think history and just a, a 
broad, fairly granular understanding of history is quite is very useful. Because again, you come back to what we discussed at the very beginning of this call. If you can get 80% of most things right, or if you can eliminate 80% of the noise, you're left with you know, what's left in the sieve when you've sieved out all of the rubbish. Um, you're, you're in a far better position to be able to have more time, make better decisions, um, and, and get more out of your life. And, and if you're a trader or an investor, you know, the same thing I think is probably true. So that kind of then comes through into execution, I guess. How do you deal with the execution of something? So whether it's an idea about a better way to lift weights or a different strategy to, to lift weights, with the execution side of things, how do you um, feel about doing that? Well, I, I typically just simply start right away. I mean, I know I'll, I'll probably be awful at anything that I'll start with, but since I'll be awful whenever I start, I can just start without, without a plan and just quickly adjust. And I think that's how most software companies are doing it these days. Um, they used to give out like beta releases and, and uh, try to um, uh, perfect the software before releasing it. But now, nowadays, uh, any decent software company simply just releases the software fully and, and then are quick to change it and maybe not even call it releases. They just constantly change them. Of course, we, we users, we kind of get annoyed sometimes when there is a new update every third day, like Skype, for example, but, uh, or, or Spotify, I and mean, they, they're probably the worst. But then again, their updates take literally no time. And anytime you kind of, well, if you switch off the computer and start it again, then, then uh, the update, the, the most recent update will have been installed. And that's that's how I, I I go about well anything from from training to to uh, perhaps not really building an investment portfolio, but I've I've been doing that for such a long time, so I don't really have to start from the beginning. I just uh, like to go back very shortly to to what we discussed earlier. So uh, when you mentioned like history and and science. Uh, I think a, a way to think about that is just to gain perspective. And, and maybe if you have a perspective that's just uh, slightly uh, different from other people, and if that difference is also in, in kind of a, in a productive direction. So like actually knowing things like history and the history of science, both, both history of economics and history of science, then you can put things into context automatically you don't really have to think about whether is this a bubble or not uh, well is this well some people don't even know bubbles exist some of the people who have been in the market for the last five six years they think what's happened now is just just normal that's what happens you buy the dip and then it goes up and then the central banks print some more money and it goes up again and if there is a Brexit or a Trump win or Italy is thinking about leaving the union, well, that's, that's buying opportunities. <laughs> that's, that's reality for, for people without a perspective, mm -hmm. a, a historical context. Uh, so I'm just using other words to, to say that I completely agree with you to, um, uh, to study other things than just accounting, like accounting or, or, or stock valuation or, or, um, technical analysis because those those that are directly related to stock prices they are they aren't really that productive in the short term they're meaningless most of the time yeah and probably in the, in the long term as well <laughs> <laughs> but, 
It's funny. I mean, I, I was discussing this with Mark Yusko from Morgan Creek Capital the other day, and you know, we were talking. One of the things that I've been writing about is, you know, and and this is also this is one of his pet hates is the low vol ETFs, right, which are being created, and they're one of the most moronic structured. Well, the structure of them is not is nothing wrong. It's how they're being utilized, right? So the more that you buy them, the lower the volatility will become, right? And therefore the more that you should buy them based on that paradigm of if it's, you know, so, so the, the risk, the risk parity trade uh, ETFs based on the VIX contract. Or, correct. So you've yeah. got uh, essentially it's utilities and it's, um, it's, it's equities that have historically low volatility. Okay. And the, and the thinking being it's a hedge against, you know, higher volatility um, equities and, um, and things, but what's taken place, of course, is that there's been an enormous amount of capital that's shifted into them. Part of that is also around people moving their capital out of actively managed funds. And look, the hedge funds, since pretty much since 08, haven't done me any good. I should have just put my money in the S&P 500 and not paid 2 and 20. So, you know, there's been all of the, you know, the call of the death of hedge funds and this is the death of active investing and so on and so forth. And, you know, this is probably the sixth, seventh time it's died, right? But without that perspective and looking back over history, anybody who has literally, for the, like you mentioned, the last five years, anybody who has looked at it in the market, worked in the market, would have the, the justification on linear thinking would be correct. You just buy ETFs. Your fees are 0.25%, say maybe 0.5% on the high side, no carry, and they go up a lot more than any of the actively managed funds. And so that perpetuates the cycle but it gets to the point where you have the equities that are actually sitting in the low vol etfs are sporting pe and price to book ratios that are three four times their historical mean and so so you you have these sort of anomalies that land up breaking up but you can i think only really understand them with the context of history and then looking at the accounting because the accounting side of things is easy it's it's i mean it's it's if you've got basic math you can understand um, you can easily go back and look at valuations over time i mean my 12 year old son would be able to spot a difference over a 20 year time frame so that part isn't actually difficult but it's having the understanding of history that allows you to synthesize that material and you know it's interesting like I had a, a, a comment just this morning from um, a reader on the blog. He, he sent me something, said, why do you give away so much information? And I thought about it and I thought, well, information today is free, for goodness sake. I, I grew up and working in the banks where you had you know, proprietary information from you know, JP Morgan, Credit Suisse, whoever. And the, you know, the, the, the reports and things that we were buying were costing thousands and thousands of pounds. And, you know, there was, when I look at them now, when I look at that kind of material, that kind of material is free. If you, if you search for it and you look for it, it is free. It's out there. And so the value isn't so much in information. The value is in the ability, and this is my belief, the value is in the ability to synthesize that information because there's actually more need to synthesize it than there is. You, you can't actually take in any more because there's such a volume of it. It's trying to very quickly understand what is useful information, what should be discarded, and then be able to synthesize that so that you can have some meaningful execution out of it. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time. 
Um, yeah, and I think that's that's where experience comes in. It's it's difficult for somebody who's just been in the market for let's say one, two, three, or four years to um, to to really understand what kind of information is useful or, or relevant, and, and and have a system to to check if it is relevant. Some kind of back testing or or um, putting into a historical perspective, uh, whereas somebody with twenty years experience uh, might see it almost right away and at least see a way to test if if that's something worth going into it's interesting you made a comment right at the start of this and you said to me i trust my gut Uh, often i have a gut feel about something and i'm not sure that it's actually a gut instinct I, i think if if you if you think through what is a gut instinct i think it's essentially a collective of experience. So uh, there's there's a stark example that I have in my head, and this is my wife's parents are dairy farmers, and we went down to their farm, and we were driving around on the farm, and her father, who's now you know, in his seventies, looked out across one of the, uh, the fields, and he's like, "There's something wrong over there." And he went out, and he landed up finding a burst water pipe, you know, digging it up and solving the problem. And I'm staring at this, it's just fields of green grass. And he spotted literally this, this tiny anomaly. And, and I, afterwards I said to him, well, I looked at that bloody field and I didn't see anything. What, what was it? He said, oh, it was just a gut instinct. And I didn't believe that. And I still don't. And I think what it was, was he didn't put it in front of himself and say, oh, this is what I saw. But maybe it was a patch of grass that was slightly greener than the rest which was the sprung leak, which, you know, I don't know what it was, but it, that the gut instinct was a 50 year, or maybe not 50, but 40 years of, of farming that was synthesized into one capsule of time. And so you mentioned gut instinct. I think that experience brings that. And so anything that can help you augment experience, um, which is, I think, a reading of history, and, and taking in that kind of experience on board, I think can help you assess situations in a far more clear light. I, I agree completely. And um, I also used the word um, pattern recognition in more or less the same sentence there in the beginning. Yeah. Uh, so so that was ac- actually exactly what I was thinking about when, when call it, calling it gut instinct. And just the more patterns that are relevant you look at and the more consciously you look at them then you train your subconscious at the same time and like 20 years down the line you've seen so many things and and seen them in various contexts that the subconscious knows when something is out of place and so that that's the gut instinct i i definitely agree and um uh, but but even when you get that gut instinct, you still have to like do the math. Like he actually did have to go and, and check that it actually was a burst water pipe and, or whatever it was that was wrong. But he, he he almost knew that he should check something. Yeah. And the same the same goes with all the kind of like expert network information you can get when when analyzing stocks that. Well, somebody wants to sell you a data series of how many people are walking into, um, like, I don't know, a Gap store. Right. 
and they and they keep counting these people in like 50 different cities in 200 different locations and they can sell you this data series they have people with you know like these clicks right. and and uh, they count people in how many are are carrying bags how many are well they can count a lot of things and it's up to you to decide can i use this for anything and well, sure, you can go ahead and do a statistical analysis, but the data series won't be that long since they just recently began it. And well, if you're experienced, maybe you you realize that mm, no, that 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 won't be useful information. Not even like when they have 25 years of that information, it, it still won't be useful. Or maybe something in in your gut tells you, well, the subconscious then uh, that. Uh, maybe, maybe there is something here. This is this is unique and it's different and it's done in a very good way. This will probably give me more information than weather reports and and sales reports, etc. So, yeah, I'll I'll buy that series. I'll be one of the first and and I'll start collecting the information and the statistics and 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 do the actual homework on it and and see if it if it works for me at least and and. Um, well, if, if you've done it for 25 years, you probably, uh, well, I guess the most people would come to the conclusion, do not buy that data series. Um, whereas like somebody who's completely new at the job might think that, oh, that's brilliant. And I'll actually know how many people have been in the stores and, and, and buying things. But, but again, without contact, like, so if you knew how many people were going through Gap stores, really to give it some, some depth you need to have the same data series across all the stores. If it's in a mall, let's just say, right. And there's mm-hmm. 20 yeah. stalls in the mall. Maybe there's nothing unique about the gap, right? But you're not mm-hmm. going to know that by having the singular piece of information. You need to have the, the collective piece of information mm-hmm. and you need to have it over time because, you know, clearly the amount of uh, volume of passengers at Christmas time is probably different to that. What is going to be in middle of July. And so, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you and I, with um, like a pre- pretty long experience of the market, will we can right, right away tell that for this to be useful, there has to be a lot of granularity and uh, and, and a lot of time passed during the, this this research for it to maybe be worthwhile. Whereas a newbie might think just think think that well, th- this is this is interesting, this is brilliant, this could be something because they haven't seen the same kind of pitch done a thousand times. It's like being a teenager and you walk into, you know, if you've been at a, a, a male boarding school for, <laughs> for your whole life and you walk into town and you, the first girl you see, you think is completely amazing, but she's the only one you've seen. After a week in town, you're like, she wasn't that great. Like this, there's, there's hundreds of far more beautiful girls. Anyway, so point taken. With that in, in the back of your mind, you're sitting at the, in the heart of, or, you know, in your neck of the woods, or should we say the neck, chest, and head of the woods of Europe. You know, what's taking place there, I think, is, uh, is certainly worth discussing. Um, the EU, um, the euro, and the banks. What do you think is taking place there? What's your, what's your take on this? And in, in, in that historical context, I'm not, you know, we're not trying to say, oh, what's going to happen tomorrow? What happens tomorrow, nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow, uh, or at least I've been long enough in this game and I've never ever met somebody who actually knows what's going to happen tomorrow. You can make presumptions and there's probabilities, but it's, it's guesswork. 
I think that the the authorities, and with the authorities, I mean like the the politicians in Brussels or whatever wherever they are these days. Uh, I don't know. They use uh, they they kind of they switch towns and they uh, well, anyway the the top politicians and the European Central Bank they are desperate to save this experiment with the euro and the European Union. Uh, they have invested so many years and so much of their career and they they have lied and they have cheated and they have done just about everything to make sure that this piece of crap holds together and the last well when shall, when shall we say it started in say the last 6 years it's been coming apart more and more clearly like some of us thought that maybe this will just break up right after the, the crash of 2008 2009 but it actually took all the way until 2010 until the the, the greek crisis began to show you know, in earnest and then since 2010 greece has come back uh, about once a year um, with with debt problems and and ever increasing debt to gdp and and really no solution at all in, in sight so Whereas they once said that 100% debt to GDP five years from now, that will be the, the target and, and then it will start to come down from there. Now it's like 140% debt to GDP in 2030 or 40. I don't, I'm not sure really. I can't, can't keep track of how, I how long. I can keep track of it. It's, it's a moving target. Yeah. So, so anyway, it's, it's just ridiculous. Greece will never... Uh, turn this around in in any way, shape, or form. They, well, not under the current structure. No, exactly, exactly. And then we have Italy right now. I mean, they are. Uh, they had a referendum that uh, said no to uh, what's his name, Matteo Renzi, uh, yeah. the, the PM there. Uh, so he has resigned since since this was a referendum on on his agenda, and he said, "Well, I'll, I'll resign if I can't push it through." Uh, and that's just a sign of the people saying we don't like what you politicians are doing. You're, 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 you're fooling us in some way. You're destroying the currencies and you're keeping the debt and you're just making sure you get to keep your jobs while all the rest of us are, are getting a tougher and tougher time. So there's something, you're doing something fishy is what the people are saying to politicians. We don't trust you. Um, so the entire Europe is leaning towards some kind of a... F- to fascist right parties just because they want some kind of an alternative and they're leaning uh, away from all the status quo politicians, all, all the nepotists that, that just want to keep this system in place. And on top of it all, you have Mario Draghi, uh, a former Goldmanite uh, at the head of the European Central Bank, uh, an Italian uh, to boot, <laughs> which just means that he's he's going to be reckless with with the uh, with his uh, ideas for uh, for monetary uh, stimulus. So he's deep into to the negative in terms of interest rates, and he he said it's four years now since when he said I'll do whatever it takes, which translates to I'll I'll just do stupid things, any anything I can possibly conceive of uh, legal or not or not just to keep this this ball rolling as as far as i can just just kick the can down the road one just one kick at a time and see what happens but now with the brexit with greek is just a greece is just a 
constantly recurring phenomenon and, and not least Italy. Uh, I think, well, I've always thought that it's impossible to, to stop this from breaking apart, but now I definitely think so. Um, I'm not sure how quickly. Well, uh, we've got, Brexit. what's it, February, I think it is, no, March next year, there's elections. Well, we've got the Netherlands, we've got France, we've got Germany, and then we've got Sweden in, I think it's September. So th- those political changes, I think the the economics has changed long ago, which has meant that things, other things should have changed, but the, um, the holdouts has been the political establishment which has been trying to hold this, this ball of yarn together. And so that is now changing. I mean, um, this is something that we're seeing across. It's not just actually Europe. It's most of the developed world that we're seeing these sorts of strong men coming into power because at the end of the day, people are, people are willing to take a chance. And, and that means they're taking a risk. By, by, by voting in somebody like Donald Trump, I, I like to say that, that Donald Trump didn't get voted in, but Hillary Clinton got voted out. Yeah. Um, and so people are saying, well, you know, I don't necessarily like this person, but I really don't like what exists. This does not work. So therefore, I have to have something else. And I'm prepared to take a risk. I know that this is a risk. I know that Donald Trump's a risk. I know that Le Pen's a risk. I know that, you know, so, but it's got to the point where I'm prepared to take that risk. Just regarding Donald Trump, I I listened to to Macro Voices. Uh, it's a it's a podcast with a guy called Eric Townsend. Yeah, so I know so. Eric. Oh, okay, yeah. and um, the most recent episode was with Steve Keen. You know, the guy who actually yes. predicted um, both the two thousand bubble and two thousand and seven bubble crashes. And he has he has very sound. He's a professor in economics, and he has very sound economic models and and thinking about not least debt and leverage and and, uh, and and booms and busts is it's not really an austrian uh, austrian economic uh, but he kind there's of an, there's an austrian lean, paint there. yeah yeah he, he, he leans at least toward that yeah and now he's saying that uh, trump actually could usher in a super bull market because he just might go with steve Keen's ideas for for debt jubilee and if, if if debts are erased, then you've got the whole new leverage bubble coming on uh, on top of that because people won't stop borrowing, uh, especially not if you insert like moral hazard uh, times two by by just erasing debts. And and on top of this, Trump, well, Keen had a, had an idea that that Trump might might more or less trick China into uh, huge foreign direct investments in the US to make China more or less pay for, for the infrastructure buildup in, in the US. Well, I, I, I think that that actually makes some sense. And I was talking about this um, with a co-manager of the fund we run. China wants to get investment into, into the US. This is, this is known. They've been trying to do this for a long time. They've been halted at anything infrastructure, you know, ports, railroads, anything of that nature. It's considered to be politically sensitive, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's been blocked. And this is, this is a, a natural phenomenon across the world. I mean, in Australia, they're trying to, uh, there's a large family that are trying to sell um, a lot of cattle land. Um, and that got blocked because the Chinese wanted to buy it. 
So this, you know, this is normal, but we do know that the Chinese are trying to make these investments. They're doing it across Africa, but in the developed world, they've been blocked often. And the, what's the one thing that Donald Trump has promised? He's promised infrastructure build out. Um, I think it could be, he could construct some sort of agreement with them instead of placing tariffs on Chinese goods, which he's been threatening to do, which would settle for trade war and would be uh, very bad for both economies. He could basically do um, like a swap transaction, right? Where, you, mm. where the investment comes in and there's a part ownership of ports and railroads. And look, it doesn't even have to be equity ownership. It can be dividend streams. It could be structured in any sort of fashion, but it lets Chinese capital come in, build out and make, make good on the promises that he's always done and still give him the political clout to say, look, I'm making the Chinese pay for it. Like he, he promised to make the Mexicans pay for the wall, right? And people mm. laugh at that. And on the face of it, it's, it's quite humorous, but it could actually be done if you work through how the, the, how the a deal could be constructed, right? Yeah, I mean, if he threatens the China, Chinese with, with a trade war and, and high tariffs and then makes just, just switches it around and says, all right, I'll, I'll, I will not slap on tariffs if you do these investments and we get, this kind of say in the investments or, or, or share ownership yep. and then then everybody is happy and and uh, it's much 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 cheaper for for the u.s government and and you don't have to put on the tariffs either which actually would be bad for for the u.s no they would they'd be bad absolutely they'd be um economic it would be a, an economic contraction i mean like it's never happened in in the past before where you've had those sorts of policies come through and it hasn't translated into lower gdp so That's a, that's a given. On the one side of things, I look at it and say, well, it's just fiscal, right? It's fiscal stimulus. And, and really with that, you get one crack at the, at, it's not like monetary stimulus where you can just keep going. You, you, you probably pretty much, you try it once, your, your balance sheet blows out and, and <laughs> if it, if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, but this would be a, a, a way to actually do that without blowing out the balance sheet in the same, in the same fashion. Yeah. And it would be a, It would be a political agreement which would keep both parties relatively happy. But when, if if we're going back to Europe, I don't really see a similar solution here. <laughs> For one, it's a kind of a diverse lot around Europe. I mean, there is no synchronization whatsoever, and whatever synchronization there was in the European Union, it's it's coming apart. And what you said about the elections, I mean, we, we've we've already had the Brexit, even if. It will take a year, well, two or three years maybe before we really see anything. Some negative effects should be um, discounted. Well, I can't even say if, if, if they are negative for real, but some kind of um, like increased volatility maybe. And then you have Italy and, and Italy is already in, in, a, in a way saying that we don't really want to be here. We don't want to be in the union. Uh, but the the real death knell would be France. If France, in any way, elected somebody who, who's promised to to step out of, of the European Union and and just maybe negate the the debts they have and anything related to the euro, then then uh, I mean it's all over. It, it will be very quickly and disorderly. And then that also brings in things like NATO, because at the same time that this is all taking place, you've got Trump threatening to basically step away from NATO. And so you guys need to stand on your own two feet a little bit. 
at the same time that uh, you guys, being Europe, are all fragmenting. And, and if you go back again, you know, like we talked about history, Europe is, is a set of clans and tribes that have fought with each other for centuries. And this period of time, which has been relatively peaceful, is a period of time. If you, if you look over history, you'll realize it's actually somewhat of an anomaly, right? And so that idea that the European Union could stay together or that the euro could stay becomes quite a difficult concept to back up. I could only see the euro remaining with a few core members potentially in a, in a much smaller state. But really the euro, is, as I understand it, is a currency that was very much pushed by Germany because it basically gave Germany a sales platform. And without other participants other than Germany, it doesn't help Germany to even have it. I mean, right now, if, if you were to, to bring back the Deutschmark, it would probably be 50% higher than the euro. And, and that would decimate their, uh, their manufacturing. They, they would now be competing, as they've always done with Japan, but Japan's been eating their lunch because they've been weakening the yen. And they would be stuck in the situation suddenly where if the euro goes away and they, they bring back the mark, I struggled to see how you'd want to be bullish on Germany. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely um, see what you mean. Uh, at the same time, I, I kind of like the ideas of, of um, having a strong currency. I see the benefits of, of a, a slowly weakening currency since it helps your, your exports. But at the same time, it makes you lazy and, and, uh, and, and you lose the internal pressure of of actually increasing your productivity. So, I mean, when the Deutschmark was very strong, that was always good for Germany. And there was always a lot of talk about how good it was to have a strong car currency. And then the last few years, uh, the weaker the currency, the, the better it's, it's been all the, all the way up, up until the Brexit, because suddenly when they lost 10%, uh, in value of, of their currency, and that was that was bad. Possibly uh, uh, suddenly, when 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 that's what actually everybody else is aiming for. So it's it's kind of. But isn't that really about debt? If you've if you don't have debt, then a strong currency is great. And if you go back over history, the countries with the strong currencies, they've have, they haven't been murdered in, in recessions and depressions. Quite the contrary. But when you have enormous debt. You need to service that debt. The easy way out, certainly if the debt is denominated in your own currency, is to weaken the currency. It makes sense. You know, you understand why they're doing it. But in the long haul, it doesn't make you stronger. It's, it's like you going to the gym and going, you know what, instead of, instead of pressing, I don't know, 50 pounds or whatever it is, I'm going to do 40. And you realize, oh, you could do another 10 reps. And you walk away going, Hey, everyone, I did 10 reps more. I, I, I got 10% more today. I was like, no, you didn't, right? So it's, it's the same. It doesn't make you stronger. It makes you weak. And then you go back next week and you go, you know what? I'm going to do 30 pounds and I'm going to do 20 or 30% more. And you eventually get to the point where you, you're doubling, right? You're going, wow, I did 100% more. But you're doing it on, on, a, on, a, on less weight. So it's like mm -hmm. a weaker currency. And that's kind of this road that we're going down. So everybody's actually just getting... But when, when one person does it, it can sort of work for a short period of time. The issue that I keep coming across is that the main 
economic blocks in the world are all doing it. The US is doing it, Europe's been doing it, and Japan's been doing it. And those are the main three blocks of currency blocks, if you're going to, you know. So in that environment, we've had this coordinated monetary policy where they've pretty much all done the same thing since 08. Hmm. And now we're seeing a divergence in that Japan's like that they're they're set in stone. They appear to be just going hell for leather to to do that. Um, Europe's fragmenting around, and um, but they're certainly not going to they're not going to look for a strong currency. And then the US is just they're not looking for a strong currency, but they're not looking for a weak currency in the same way. So it's it's a little bit like. You don't need things to get better. They just could be a little bit less worse. Mm. And, but I, I think, I think um, the U.S. has one um, thing that's more important to them than, than most other countries, and that's that the dollar is the reserve currency that gives them tremendous power. So I think they are, think they are ready to, um, to take the cost of keeping the dollar at least reasonably strong uh, or, or possibly weakening at a slow pace if, if that helps them uh, but they don't want it to to just devalue or depreciate uh, disorderly uh, because they could lose their reserve currency status i think they will lose it anyway but uh, at least they they could defend it for tens tens of years or even more maybe if they if they manage this well, at least in a half-assed way uh, <laughs> but but Japan, they have so much debt that they, they really have no alternative at all. Debt jubilee, maybe in some way, because well, it, it's mostly uh, domestic debt anyway. Um, the question is, what what happens to their pension system if if they do that? I don't know. Uh, but but they really don't have any alternative. They have too much debt. They they can't ever it's, get back to normal under the current system. Europe is more or less where, where the U.S. is, about 100% debt to GDP, but they don't have a reserve currency status. So they have nothing to, to, to defend. And they are so dead set at defending this project, the, the Euro and the European Union project. So they'll, they'll, well, Europe will try to go the path of, of Japan because we'll keep defending like the system and, 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 the, and the, the Euro project. And, uh, and that leads into, well, it only leads in one direction, more and more stimulus and more and more debt. And the question is just how quickly will Europe disintegrate? And I think it will disintegrate a lot faster than, than Japan. I mean, Japan is a very unique monoculture, whereas Europe is the, quite the opposite. And we have a new project, but this is very new, the whole, this whole euro thing. I, I, I really can't see the euro looking like it does now, 10 years from now. It, like, there's no way. I can't disagree with that. Which brings me to banks. What do you think about the European banks? I think they are very risky. I, I, I know you, you, you tried buying one. I don't know how, how, how long-term you are in, in that bank or if you want to tell... Uh, your listeners, uh, w- which it is, uh, it's it's down by ninety five percent in a, in a few years' time. Uh, it's valued at a couple of billion euros. Um, I mean, that's that's still real money. And I don't have any details on what their price book is, what kind of bond exposures they have to various uh, uh, European bonds, uh, or what their client exposure is if if they have. Uh, lent out financed houses or whatever in in, in uh, 
foreign foreign currencies if, if they have any risk like that but but anyway just in general looking at um, uh, the southern European banks like Unicredit for example they tend to be loaded up with uh, European government debts of, of various quality and once Europe starts to disintegrate uh, all of those except uh, the German Bund will well, if, if not become worthless, they will lose um, more or less all of their value. Uh, and I think a lot of these these uh, banks will go bankrupt or at least they, they'll wipe out the, the equity. They'll have um, bail-ins, just taking the money from uh, from deposit holders and, uh, and, and bond holders, uh, which means even more bonds will go worthless. Um, so I think uh, more or less all of the weak banks in southern Europe will um, turn out to be disastrous investments. Uh, they'll, they'll keep them going for sure in some way because you still need a banking system. And if your bank is down by 95% in a couple of years, um, yeah, maybe, maybe that was enough. Maybe that's tantamount to have already wiping out the equity holders. But there is always 95% downside. Uh, on any investments but you probably have a good bounce opportunity here maybe uh, i can't I, I i couldn't time that in any way but i personally would not buy banks in peripheral europe especially not southern parts yeah we've we've got a couple of positions one's actually um, a spanish bank and the other one's a greek one it's mostly been restructured but We've talked about Japan before, and that's one of the things we've been looking at, Japanese financials, as well as equities over there. Quite interesting as well. Have you looked at any of those at all? I try to make myself <laughs> interested in... in uh, I, I got a list of 20 different, like boring, really boring investments from, from a friend. Uh, he, he's actually the son of the guy who created ABB, ASEA Brown Bovary one of Europe's biggest companies that uh, makes like power stations, dams and stuff like that. He's very into Japan and he, he had checked out uh, a lot of companies trading below price book, uh, stuff like companies that take care of funerals. I'm not sure what they're called. Funeral parlors or? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's probably the, the name for it. So like the, the idea was that if you're trading below price book and people are dying more and more in Japan since they're getting older, then maybe it's a very stable business and shouldn't be below price book. But then there turned out when I dug deeper that there were, there were other things that actually uh, explained why it was cheap. And there, he, he had gone, gone through, um, he, he's actually a very good investor. He is, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure he has a plan, but he, he had like 40 different Japanese investments and they were like there were engineering companies and there were some consultancies and there were well a lot of different companies. But I, I never really could get interested in, in any of those. That was a long answer. And the short answer would be just like, nah, no, I haven't really okay. <laughs> been interested in the Japanese companies. And it's too, too far away and too, too complicated to really get into the stories. Right. Is there anything that you're sort of looking at thinking, well, that seems um, extraordinarily interesting? Or is it mostly, um, as most of us, I think, are looking at saying everything looks expensive? Um, Almost everything. My own private investments, they are mostly uh, 
unlisted like private companies sure uh, and I, I did get approached by various companies with with interesting ideas and right now i'm i'm going into a company actually making uh, jet driven surfboards so there are there are a couple of those uh, but they are like heavy and slow and got a poor range uh, etc uh, but this one makes it, they're like surfboards and they only weigh 13 kilos uh, and they have one or two jets inside the hull, and they still they're still not much broader or or or, or, um, or thicker than, than an ordinary wave surfboard, and they are sturdy enough to actually use in in, in a wave in in big wave surfing. So these are their own tow-in machines. Wow! Uh, but you can also, of course, just ride them on, on flat water or just slightly wavy water and, and do jumps and, and, and whatever, whatever you like. And they weigh 13 kilos. You can take them on the, on the airplane. I think th- this is an interesting idea, but it's, it's only interesting, of course, because I can get it at a very cheap multiple. Uh, well, the multiple is the wrong word because they, are, they don't even exist yet. <laughs> but, but I get it at very low company value. Um, and that's why it's interesting, but I can't really see any ideas like this on the stock market, more or less none. And another private investment is in um, a platinum and gold royalty streaming company. That's just a way to, to get hold of, of actual physical rare metals. I like the streaming model. I think that's, it's like buying a long dated call option without any expiry date on it. Yeah, exactly. And then I got a couple of, of listed companies as well, but those are small Swedish companies that you would never ha- have heard of. One is in in, um, in the nuclear business, and they should be a good bet if there are a lot of new nuclear facilities built or if nuclear facilities are, are being like lo- uh, ruled out and, and, and uh, de- dismantled. So what we really need is, well, what I need is, more clear decision from from several states, including the, including Sweden, whether we're going to build out uh, nuclear power or dismantle it, like like uh, Germany is doing. Uh, so it's like a, a binary option on a binary. What do you call it? straddle? Uh, yeah. Like, like a, yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. It's a straddle on on on, uh, uh, on the nuclear power business. Okay. Very good. Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure as always. I'm going to let you go now. I really appreciate your time and your insights. Sure, I hope you can use this for for something. <laughs> Absolutely, I'll I'll be publishing it. Um, and for anybody that wants to get a hold of Michael, they can find him on his website, or if you actually just Google Mikhail Siding S Y D I N G, you'll it'll it'll be the first thing that comes up is his site, and he runs a podcast as well, which is well worth your time. Some of it's in Swedish, which I struggle with because I can't speak Swedish, but most of it is, is fine. But at least yeah. there's one episode in English, at least. <laughs> well, there's, there's, the, there's, there's the earlier one that you and I did as well, um, somewhere in there. But MikhailSiding.com is the, is the address to go to. I always enjoy um, talking with you. You've got a, a unique perspective on life and on investments, and I think that was easily one of the main reasons why you were so successful all right thank you so much for having me it's um, always interesting to talk to you i, I come up with things i didn't know i had in me uh, anyway <laughs> before we talk great okay 
Thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.